Hello, good evening, good evening. Okay, all right. I just started recording. Um, we got to do one more thing. This is quite the, uh, anybody wants to give me a technology class over here and um, how this works. You only get that in Israel. They've got all the startups. <laughs> um, okay, all right. All right, sounds good. I think we're ready to go. You ready? Okay. Um, oh yes, I gotta try this one more thing. Let's try sharing a screen, right? Let's share a screen. And there you have it. All right, so good evening, everybody. Uh, don't worry, I'm not gonna share the screen the whole time. It's great to see you all. Welcome to our course. Uh, second class of our course, Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. And tonight's topic will be how to out, outsmart anti-Semitism. Isn't that quite the uh, feature? Uh, but more importantly, I wanted to get to our sponsors for tonight. So I'd like to thank, thank first of all, the, the Jewish Endowment Fund, uh, Jewish Cultural Endowment Fund for underwriting uh, this course in general. I would also like to thank um, uh, Dr. Aaron and Dr. Jenny Davis for sponsoring today's class specifically in loving memory of um, those who perished during the Holocaust. And uh, we sincerely hope uh, and pray that of course we will outsmart anti-Semitism and there will never be such, a, such an event again. So we are in the second class. And as always, I'm gonna set this off with a joke that's not funny. And so today's joke goes like this. Um, I, sh I should probably, um, Okay, and today's joke goes like this. Uh, there were two Jews, they're walking along the road and of course they're living in Europe and they're very poor. So um, they're walking by a uh, church and they see a big sign on the front, uh, come and convert $1,000. So Yankel tells Merrill, hey, you see that? I think it's a good idea. We should uh, go inside, get some money. So he says, okay, go try it out. Let me know what happens. So he heads off inside. And uh, he takes one hour, two hours, finally three hours later, Yankel walks out the building and Shmara looks at him and says, wow, that was a long time. Tell me, uh, did you convert? He says, yeah. He says, so tell me, did they pay you the thousand dollars? He says, oh, you Jews, all you think is about money. So, so this, is, uh, this is kind of where we're gonna get to today. Anti-Semitic, really, really anti-Semitic attitudes and uh, how we deal with them. Last week, and just to recap what we discussed last week, last week, uh, we discussed a lot more general um, for those who were here last week. And if you weren't here, I'll just recap. Last week, we discussed generally, first of all, anti-Semitism is currently a relevant topic. It's very, very relevant. Um, we also discussed um, that living with fear is not very helpful. Living with fear is not very helpful. Um, and that is because um, it doesn't enable us to uh, properly assess the situation, A, and also B, uh, it's the bully wins if we live in fear. And so we discussed three meditations to deal with the fear. And then we went on to um, when we do anything that really helps to abate anti-Semitism. Uh, good evening, Svika. By the way, I have your book here if you want. Uh, your book is here, so just letting you know. Um, and, and finally, we discussed if we do anything to, uh, to help abate anti-Semitism, we have to remember that the spiritual 
that we uh, that we do is just as important as the physical, because the spiritual um, is really the blessing, really what brings us the blessing and security, and the physical is just a way for God to give us that blessing, and so therefore, whenever we discuss anti-Semitism or what we're going to do about it, if we ignore the spiritual items and just purely focus on the physical, we're missing a lot. That was last week. This week, we're going to get into a little bit more about what do we actually do about anti-Semitism. And more specifically, um, we will get to a lot of anti-Semitic, um, why people, the biggest question, you know, there's a big book out there, you know, why do people hate the Jews? There's lots of books like that. There's a famous one written by Dennis Prager. So I'll first start off with this question if you want to put it in the chat. Um, what, can you give me some common reasons why we are hated? Any, any reasons or not, or uncommon, really, just any, anything that you think is a reason why they hate us. And um, I'll be looking in the chat, or if you're here in person, let me know. Any common reasons why they hate us? We don't allow freedom for others. We don't allow freedom for people to do whatever they want. Okay. It's apropos. Somebody told me today that they think we're, we're in a cult. Um, I see we have some other attack over here because they are not like us. Palestinian conflict, ignorance. They don't know, nor do they understand. Okay. All very good. Any others? It's built in, it's ingrained into them because of uh, Jesus. All right, so the, the, it's based on Christianity, okay. Yeah. It's another uh, another one that's brought up a lot. Okay, any others? And- um, Well, the yes. logical things, yeah, we're successful. We are successful in many ways, okay. Uh, as, as somebody once told me, where's my piece of the pie? <laughs> if we're so successful, because Whoa. we're at one, <laughs> a cornerstone of morality, good. Well, think of how many Nobel Prize winners we've got. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got a lot of Nobel Prize winners. This is true. Uh, they think we run everything. Yes. It's also in, in a lot of the books. All right. So got a lot of nice feedback over here. So we're going to first start with the most common uh, broad reason that we had over here. And that was um, people saying that it starts from Christianity. Now, that cannot be entirely true because we know that anti-Semitism predates Christianity. Again, anti-Semitism uh, predates Christianity by a lot. You just have to look in the Torah. If you look in the Torah, I'm going to share the screen over here. If we look in the Torah, what does the Torah say about uh, King Pharaoh? Now, one second. Let me see if I can click on this. All right. Oh, nice. Okay. So the Torah says about... Um, King Pharaoh. Let me just skip some of these. Uh, why is it not going? All right, I just have to press. Sorry, I'm trying to. All right, let's skip that. Oh, I didn't update. Okay, so so much for that. I, I edited my PowerPoint, and it's not edited. All right, so forget about that. I'll just tell you by heart. The Torah in Exodus, King Pharaoh says one of the most common anti-Semitic things which is said till today. And that is that, um, and that is 
that he says, you know, we can't trust these Jews. One day they may make a revolt and they may overcome us. They may fight us all and they may leave the land or, or they may, or other way of understanding it, they may force us to leave the land. Regardless, what they're pretty much saying is we cannot trust the Jews. The Jews cannot be trusted. They cannot be loyal. And therefore, Pharaoh said, we have to enslave the Jewish people to make sure they never rise up and make a revolt. So it's one of, one of the oldest pieces of anti-Semitism. It's there in the Bible, predates Christianity by a lot. Similarly, uh, we're going to share on the screen over here um, these texts from in, this, in the uh, student book. And if you have a student book, you can find it on page 48. And um, I'm just going to share it on the screen over here. Just one second. Okay, so here is a quote from, um, this is a quote from, um, this is written by Tactius. Tactius was a very fascinating uh, person. He was a, um, he lived in the first century of the common era and he's considered one of the great historians of the Roman empire. And when he talks about anti-Semitism towards the Jews, he mentions some rather strange things, which, which are very common to today. So if you look at it, I'm not going to read it all, but he says, for example, over there, the Jews regard as profane all that we hold sacred. On the other hand, they permit all that we abhor. And in addition, he writes, the other customs of the Jews are base and abominable and owe their persistence to their depravity. The worst rascals among other people renouncing their ancestral religions always kept sending tribute and contributions to Jerusalem, thereby increasing the wealth of the Jews. So again, this is in the first century common era. If you read his whole thing, he's, he's just nothing to do with uh, Christianity or not. He's just saying that they're totally different and all the different things that they do. So again, um, the reason for our hate is not related to Christianity. Um, and uh, if you go, Josephus also has... Um, some text for those who don't know who Josephus was. Josephus uh, lived during the destruction of the Second Temple. And uh, again, this is before Christianity really took root. And um, he wrote an article defending the Jewish people against the lies of a person called Apion. Apion was a uh, work which um, really... Um, was written to say terrible things about the Jewish people. You know, I guess a, a forerunner of the protocols of the elders design. And he was a Hellenized Egyptian philosopher who lived in the first half of the first century. So again, Egyptian philosopher, again, nothing related to Christianity. And Josephus, again, spends a lot of his time to refuting uh, Apion and a lot of his, um, a lot of the things that he said. So again, uh, we don't have to really go through uh, the text over here, it's not that important. What I'm trying to present, and that's the main thing that I'm trying to show over here, at least in this first instance, is that um, anti-Semitism is one of the oldest hates, and it really goes back to the time from when we became a Jewish nation, all the way back into Egypt, at a point where uh, there was nothing religious about it. King Pharaoh did not like us at all. And um, over here, we're just going to go through on the screen a lot of the uh, more famous anti-Semitic um, things that are out there. There's, there's a lot of things that are said about us, and it's quite fascinating when we go through all of these uh, different anti-Semitic 
ideas that are brought about us. So let me just show you over here and let's see if I can get this to work at this time. Okay. And so what we're gonna to show today is anti-Semitism is first of all ancient, it predates the religion, it's absurd and it's contradictory. So let's take a look. Uh, we're gonna skip the, uh, here are some of the ancient things that are said about us. Um, some people say that we cause all the societal problems. For example, anybody who knows the Black Plague, Black Plague was blamed on the Jewish people. In fact, even till today, COVID-19 is blamed on Jews in many circles. Um, similarly, um, we are said to be lazy. Um, and in one of the works that we read a moment ago, it says, look, every Saturday they take off and every seventh year they take off. They're lazy people, right? We're very, very lazy. In fact, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther in his book of 1543, he wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lives. And he speaks all about how uh, the Goyim have to work hard and not the Jews. So again, very, very ancient anti-Semitic ideas that were lazy. Uh, similarly, uh, others say that uh, we have been rejected by the gods. And uh, obviously that, that is more common amongst uh, the religious anti-religious form of anti-Semitism. But again, anti-Semitism is not limited to religion. It's a hate that comes out in all societies and in all religions. Um, then you have the, um, no, that didn't escape, okay. Others say that uh, we're very wealthy. Jews are very wealthy. We have all the money. Uh, a couple of years ago, not too long ago, there was actually a parade somewhere in Europe, I forget where it was, where it depicted Hasidic Jews with long noses holding bags of coins. So again, very, very recent. If you go online, you'll see this all the time. Jews are wealthy, they control all the money. Um, uh, others say that uh, we rip off non-Jews. That's one of the things that we like to do. And there's a lot of uh, history to that. Again, Martin Luther in his book in 1543 wrote all about it. Uh, others say that we just, we hate non-Jews. Now, one second, this is not working. Okay, others say that we hate non-Jews. In other words, we only love our own and we hate people who are not Jewish. And uh, worse than that, others say that uh, we have cruel rituals. Like for example, the blood libel. The blood libel is where um, we were accused of slaughtering Christians and putting their blood in our matzah. In fact, the first recorded blood libel was in the year 1144. And there was a murder of a person called William Norwich. William Norwich, and nobody knew who killed him. And the local government stepped in and they said, no, it's not like, what are you blaming it on the Jews? It's a Hakka China, that can't be true. But in the year 1255, once again in England, the Jews were accused of another unsolved murder called Hugh of Lincoln. You know, it must be a good life to be an FBI investigator in an anti-Semitic country. It's just like, we can't figure it out. All right, it was probably the Jews, right? And uh, this time, King Henry III actually, um, eventually in the year 1290, decided, sorry, King Henry III executed 19 Jews. And by 1290, King Edward I uh, issued an edict, edict of expulsion, and he expelled the Jews from England on November 1st of the year 1290, and they were not allowed to return for another 400 years. So again, this these lies that we, that we, that we you know, slaughter people and, and take their blood and whatnot. Again, these are old blood libels. And unfortunately, these blood libels still continue to, to today. Uh, you don't see too much about the blood libels as much, but it has been printed in uh, Arabic countries as of late. And uh, 
really, when you think about it, a lot of these things, a lot of these claims are absurd. For example, we have um, some people want to say that the Jews did 9-11. This is from Google. And uh, even though Al-Qaeda took credit for uh, the, killing, the, killing of nine, the killings of 9-11, <clears throat> there are, there are anti-Semitic conspiracy theories out there that believe that Jews were behind it. And they say that the Mossad warned the Jewish people not to go. And in fact, on September 18th, and you can see this in text number three, if you have a student book, a website known as the Information Times. Now, any, uh, any newspaper or, or website, it's called Information Times. Sounds a little fishy. I wouldn't trust it. But anyways, in this newspaper called the Information Times, uh, they wrote like this, the terrorist government of Israel cannot be ruled out. Okay, so some wacky website says you cannot rule out the, 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 the government of Israel. And shortly five days later, in Al-Manar, which is a TV station in Lebanon, they said that 4,000 Jews had been warned. And within days, this rumor appeared in newspapers, mailing lists, and people continue to still believe this lie until today, even though 18% of those who died in uh, the Twin Towers were Jewish. And so again, what we're getting to is that a lot of anti-Semitism is both ancient and it's absurd. It's absurd to believe that uh, the Jews are behind 9-11, right? This is very absurd. I'll give you another, uh, I'll say it with a story or a joke. They say in the, in the USSR and the, so, the former Soviet Union, they had trouble with uh, anti-Semitism, of course, as you can imagine, even though everybody was supposed to be equal. And the story goes like this. They also had trouble getting bread. For those who don't know, they had trouble getting bread. And so one time in the early days of the shortage, uh, there was a queue of people lined up to buy bread. And uh, at some point, one of the communists come out of the main building and says, I'm sorry, uh, looks like our shipment is going to be delayed and it's not going to be too much. We ask that all Jews get out of the line. All right. Then uh, a couple hours later, they come out again and say it's even more delayed and we're not sure when the shipment is coming. Um, we're not going to have too much anyways. We ask all people who are not veterans to get out of the line. Okay. A few hours later, the communists come out again and say, we're sorry, there's nothing to buy. We're going to ask all of the veterans to leave the line and everybody go home. There's no food. And so you have these two Russian veterans uh, of the army. And the one looks at the other and they say, you see the Jews? You see the Jews? They're, they're, they've got connected. They were told to leave the earliest, right? They were told to leave the earliest. They've got the connections. And so that's really how it goes. The, the absurdity of anti-Semitism in any way that they can find that it's our fault or that we know something, right? So we were sent home first because they were being anti-Semitic to us, but anti-Semitism to us, you know, they, they, then they end up blaming it on us. Um, <clears throat> they, they also tell the story, and again, it's, it's more of an anecdote, more of a joke. And so they say that uh, before World War I, one of the Poland's prime ministers, he met with President Woodrow Wilson and he sat there and he says, if our demands are not met, I can foresee serious trouble in my country. My people will be so angry, they'll go get drunk, and they'll do a pogrom on the Jewish people. And so Woodrow Wilson says, and what will happen if I do meet your demands? He says, my people will be so happy, they'll go to the bar, and they'll be so happy, and they'll go, and they'll make a pogrom and attack the Jewish people, right? So <laughs> that's how it goes. We're, we're hated no matter which way it goes. And in fact, this idea of the absurdity of anti-Semitism and the fact that really no reason that we give will help was actually described by a person called Menachem Zemba. 
Menachem Zemba, which is going to be our next text over here. So Menachem Zemba was a very famous Hasidic rabbi. And um, he um, eventually was appointed as the rabbi in Warsaw, a rabbi in Warsaw. There were many great rabbis in Warsaw, but he was a young man, very well respected. And he was actually in the Warsaw ghetto. And as you can imagine, the fighting that ravaged over there, he even led a, a, a Passover Seder in the Warsaw ghetto. Unfortunately, on the fifth day of Passover, he was gunned down in the Warsaw ghetto. And so there's a fascinating text uh, that he wrote while he was in the Warsaw ghetto. And I'm going to um, share with you over here, very, very powerful words that he wrote, but we all know it to be true. And uh, let me just scroll over here. All right, so it says like this. There are those who seek to identify legitimate causes for hatred of the Jews. However, reality has shown that there is no legitimate reason. Anti-Semitism has no justifiable cause. The haters simply choose to hate God's people. This is demonstrated by the fact that the Jews are hated for being capitalists and also hated for being socialists. They are hated because they are overly ambitious and sharp-minded and also because they are innocent and paristic. Uh, I must have pronounced that wrong, but okay. Um, they are hated because they are too religious and conservative and also because they advance progressive and secular ideas. The reasons for this hatred are consistently contradictory and have not an ounce of logic behind them. Um, we all know today, depending on the political spectrum you're in, right? So if you're hanging around some far right wingers, they'll say, oh, all Jews are liberal. And if you hang around liberal people, they'll say, oh, all you Jews, you voted for Trump or whatever, you know, whatever. Which, wherever you are, you're wrong. You know, you, <laughs> you, can't, you can't win. You can't, you can't win. Hatred of the Jewish people is both ancient and whatever reasons they give as we're trying to get to is not a real reason. The reason that that's given is not a real reason. And so what we're really leading to over here, and this is the most the important point that we're starting with today, is considering how delusional, delusional and nonsensical anti-Semitic claims have been. So you might say, well, the right way to, to defeat anti-Semitism would be to get more information out there. Now, to be sure, sometimes that works. And on some people that works. And that's what Josephus wrote his book. And today, many people work on educating the masses about the Jewish people. But unfortunately, despite all the education that we've put out there, um, it's never going to be fully effective because those who want to believe the lies will always believe the lies, no matter how much you put it in their face, because this is an absurd hate. And many times it has no ounce of reason in it. Now, I'm going to caution. Yes, education helps, and I'll tell you who it helps for. So there are people out there that put out conspiracy theories about Jews because they hate Jewish people. Then there are innocent people that hear those theories and say, oh, that sounds about right. Those people, when you come to them and you educate them, yes, they will change their mind. And I have many cases and stories, and I meet people, and it's good to talk to people. And they, you know, if you have Gentile friends and you talk to them and they'll ask you questions, you can answer. Those are the types of people that education helps. But there is also a large portion of anti-Semites who hate for just because hate, it's, it's irrational. And no amount of education that we're going to put out there is going to change their minds. Let's take a look over here. 
at text number five. Um, one second, text number five. So it's like this. So this is uh, again from Deborah Lipshot. She is the anti-Semitism czar and she studied this for much of her life. And so she says like this, it is hard if not impossible to explain something that is essentially irrational, delusional and absurd. That is the nature of all conspiracy theories of which anti-Semitism is just one. So again, she's saying this really applies to many conspiracy theories, right? We know a lot of people out there that believe many different uh, crazy theories. Think about it. Why do some people insist that the moon landings took place on a stage set someplace in the American West? Despite the existence of reams of scientific and personal evidence to the contrary, they believe this because they subscribe to the notion that the government and other powerful agencies are engaged. Uh, 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 let me go up to fool the public. If we were to provide these conspiracy theorists with evidence that proves the landing was indeed on the moon, they would a priori dismiss what we say and assume we are part of the conspiracy. Um, to try to defeat an irrational supposition, especially when it is firmly held by its proponents with a rational explanation is virtually impossible. Any information that does not correspond with conspiracy theorists preferred social, political, or ethnic narratives is ipso facto false. Social scientists have described such theories as having a self-sealing quality that make them particularly immune to challenge. So again, I'm not advocating we don't spread education, but what I am saying is we should not fool ourselves to believe that education is the be all and end all. If we just educate people, if only we would educate people, we would get rid of anti-Semitism. It's not going to work. Uh, there are always going to be people that hate us and there are people that have hated us uh, forever. In fact, there's a story told by the Medrash, the Medrash Eicha. So for those who know what Eicha is, Eicha is the Book of Lamentations. The Book of Lamentations actually writes a story like this. There was the Roman uh, king, king he was, the general or king, his name is Hadrian. And a Jew passed by him and said, uh, Hi, uh, Hadrian, how are you? Or something like that. You know, he greeted him. A nice greeting, respectful. And uh, Hadrian said, what? A dirty Jew greeting me? Off with his head. All right. Walks by another Jew, saw what happened to the first Jew, and he keeps quiet. And the emperor Hadrian turns to his soldiers and says, what? A Jew, a dirty Jew walking by, not greeting the king? Off with his head. And so the servants turned to him and say, they can't get it right. If they greet you off with their head, if they don't greet you off with their head, what do they do? And the Midrash quotes uh, the powerful answer and he replies to them. You want to, and he says, you want to tell the king what to do about those he hates? That's That was his reply. So the Midrash says, you're telling me what I should do about those who I hate? I don't, it's not really the reason. It's not he greeted me or he didn't greet me. I hate them. I had a pretext with which to kill them. But it, it, that's not really the reason. The reason is because I hate. And haters will hate. And there are cases of haters that, that, that transform and change. And we'll get to that at the end and, and ways that we can do that. But we have to remember, first of all, that hate is something that's going to be around um, because it is irrational. I'm hearing some feedback, so I'm just going to mute everybody. Um, before we move on to the lack, to the uh, main point of the class, I want to just mention something that's very important. Um, based on this idea that anti-Semitism is irrational, the anti-Semites themselves realized this, and they wanted to make anti-Semitism sound more rational. 
And that is actually where the name anti-Semitism came from. The name anti-Semitism actually came from the anti-Semites themselves. Why? Because they wanted to make anti-Semitism seem like a logical theory. They wanted to make it seem, well, we believe in the uh, anti-Semitic theory, right? Like people might say, we believe in uh, anti-socialism, right? So there's anti-socialism, there's anti, uh, anti-Semitism, right? It's, 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 it's a powerful theory. Let's take a look over here at the text. This is going to be in text number six. Just again, a, just a fascinating insight, just how far this anti-Semitism has gone. Um, so let's read over here. Mar Wilhelm, German writer and political theorist and agitator. In 1879, Mar founded the Anti-Semites League, the first organization devoted exclusively to promoting political anti-Semitism. Mar's organization reflected his secular racism, which existed inconsistently alongside his religious anti-Semitism. His self-proclaimed goal was to free Christianity from the yoke of Judaism. Mar coined the term anti-Semitism, which for him denoted a secular racial hatred of Jews. He used the word anti-Semitism to make a Jew hatred seem rational, sanctioned by science, polite. So again, if you want to say it's scientific to hate the Jews, then it's not religious, right? Again, you can't, you can't have both, right? If his official claim was to free Christianity from the yoke of Judaism, then why was he saying, oh, you know, the race, the race of Jews is a terrible thing. Well, it's not, not the race, it's their beliefs, right? No, again, it's inconsistent, but he didn't care about that. He wanted to make it seem as if anti-Semitism was uh, some type of deep scientific belief that uh, people can get behind. And, and so again, hearkening back to what we said earlier, is anti-Semitism, or is the original cause of it, uh, the different religions? I would say, no, definitely. Um, there are religions today, Jews more or less, whatever, but that, that's not the real cause of what causes anti-Semitism. Those are just a pretext. Um, so just to recap over here, let us just quickly go through the uh, PowerPoint. And uh, the ideas that are over there. So one second. And we're going to share this on the screen. And then I'm going to take some questions. So think about all your questions. All your many, many questions. So again, here we have anti-Semitism is absurd. And uh, oh, I'm going to skip that. So not only is anti-Semitism absurd, but it's actually um, contradictory. We're socialists, we're capitalists. Um, Others say we're ambitious. Others say we're lazy. Um, some say we're too religious. Some say we're too secular. All, all different reasons that are contradictory and sometimes even brought up by the same people. And so we have to appreciate that hardcore haters will not allow themselves to be confused with the facts. So we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't God forbid, confuse them. No, I'm kidding. Of course, there are some people. Um, What's this over here? Right. And here the word anti-Semitism should actually be replaced. Here they write the word evil. I just think it should be called Jew hatred. Anti-Semitism actually sounds like it's a uh, some theory, but in truth, anti-Semitism is nothing more than hate. They call it anti-Semitism to make it sound like it's some dignified theory. But in truth, anti-Semitism is pure evil and uh Jew hatred. All right. So to recap, we have discussed tonight. Um, we started off 
saying that anti-Semitism is very ancient and that we brought a couple texts that show that. We also show anti-Semitism is not rational in many cases, and therefore education alone is not going to be enough because some people who hate us will always hate us. And finally, anti-Semitism, because it's irrational, they know it, they tried calling the theory called anti-Semitism, but really, if we would call it what it is, Jew hatred, um, it would change the equation. In fact, you see this today, and this is a discussion in one of the later classes, that's why uh, many people today say, oh, we're not, we don't hate Jews, or we're not anti-Semitic, we're anti-Zionism, or anti-Israel, right? So it's, again, another way of saying that their hatred is not hatred. It's uh, some dignified uh, theory of anti-Zionism. Uh, so, um, but again, that's, that's more for a later class, how we deal specifically with anti-Zionism. Here we're dealing with the general hate. I know some people mentioned uh, Israel. That will be for later classes. Any questions or comments? Uh, feel free to put in the chat or unmute yourselves, but make your comments quick and sweet. Does hatred start after you grow up? Um, yeah, but hatred is also hatred is also passed down. Yes. It's like, it's like that. Can you hear me? Yes, can I can you hear. hear it's like that uh, show where it says, you know, you have to be taught uh, these things when you have to be taught the hatred. You're not born with it. But this also, this hatred of Jews also has to do with human beings. Uh, not accepting responsibility for their problems, their economic problems, or their social problems, or their emotional problems. So they always have to blame somebody. The concept of the scapegoat. Well, yes, I mean, who are you going to blame? Are you going to blame a very rich, powerful people? You can't attack a rich, powerful, you know, many numbered people. So, you know, we're convenient. And um, I think it's. Yes. Part of it. Yes. Yes. Very good. Thank you. Yes. We, we mentioned that. Um, that was the first one we mentioned was uh, blaming societal problems. But yes, the word scapegoat. Yes, that's a common one. We are used as a scapegoat a lot. Um, like I said, COVID-19, some people want to blame it on us. The Black Plague, they wanted to blame on us. And, um, you know, it's interesting, by the way, some people are saying, as somebody wrote here in the chat, Hatred is passed on by the parents. I faced a lot of anti-Semitism when I was a child as far back as elementary school. It's actually very interesting. I actually find, you know, as I did research before this course and I was actually thinking of it, it's actually interesting that as a religious Jew, I think I actually experienced less anti-Semitism than a lot of other people here in the Zoom call. I know it sounds strange, right? You think I'm very visibly Jewish, but I've actually you experienced- live in, You live in an insular community too. You're not exactly, as exactly. As many exactly. Um, exactly. It's, it's very interesting that despite being visibly Jewish, I've uh, probably experienced less anti-Semitism than most people here. Uh, I know my neighbor who's Jewish talk about, you know, how uh, some of the kids in his class would get bullied for being Jewish and he would stand up for them. Uh, a lot of Jews growing up in the 60s, 70s, a lot of their identity was standing up for their fellow Jews or getting or getting beat up for being Jewish. Uh, I see uh, the Harris family wanted to say something. Yes. Yeah. What about self-hating Jews? BDS. My poor daughter is fighting every single day. Every campus. Every campus. 
Um, self-hating Jews. Self-hating Jews is a complex, which ultimately comes from something that we're going to, that will be the next point in the class, but ultimately it comes from, it's almost like a belief that, again, if we were to just get rid of this issue, people would love us. That's really where I think a lot of it comes from. So Jews, we are, we love to be extra critical of ourselves. So that way we believe as if we do that, people will love us because look, we're, we're, we're also BDS. We're also this, we're also that. Uh, doesn't pan out as will be the next point in the class. Uh, somebody wrote here, yes, got beat up for being a Christ killer. Yeah. Um, I remember in yeshiva, every Halloween, they used to throw eggs at us. Somebody would get egg, but uh, it's not so, not so bad. Didn't, didn't have it so bad. All right. So now let's move on to the next point, unless anybody else has any comments in the chat. Um, AIDS is blamed on the Jews. Yeah, everything's blamed on the Jews. Okay. <clears throat> So we know now that people hate us for many reasons. We know now that those reasons are absurd and they don't really have a great explanation to them. So then we have to ask, so why the Jews? In other words, why do they hate us? If, if those reasons are not the real reason, why do they hate us? What is really deeper behind it? Like I said, Dennis Prager spent an entire book discussing this issue. And uh, actually his final answer that he gets to is pretty much similar to what we're going to get to today, but uh, we're going to take a twist on it. Let's first take a look at Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs has to say about the matter. And for those who don't know, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs uh, is the only rabbi to also become a Lord. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, he's not a God, of course. But um, he... Uh, um, he wrote, he, he lived in England, obviously, where there was uh, a lot of anti-Semitism going on over there. So he says like this, this is a very fascinating line. There has been an almost endless set of speculations about what the cause of anti-Semitism actually is. Some have seen it in psychological terms, displaced fear, externalization of inner conflict, projected guilt, the creation of a scapegoat. Others have given it a socio-political explanation. Jews were a group who could conveniently be blamed for economic resentments, social unrest, class conflict, or destabilizing change. Yet others view it through the prism of culture and identity. Jews were the stereotyped outsiders against whom a group could define itself. Um, uh, I skipped too far. Okay. Let me move up over here. Yet others, noting the concentration of anti-Semitism among the very faiths, Christianity and Islam, that trace their descent to Abraham and Judaism, favor a Freudian explanation in terms of the myth of Oedipus. We seek to kill those who gave birth to us. It would be strange indeed if so complex a phenomenon did not give rise to multiple explanations. He's saying the fact that we have multiple explanations for anti-Semitism is to be understood. It makes sense. <laughs> if uh, if it's been going on for so long, uh, there will be multiple, multiple explanations. Now, when you think about it, do any of these explanations really fully answer the question? And again, as I quote Dennis Prager, but Dennis Prager in his book really goes through each, each one of these reasons and proves how this cannot be the total reason. It does not answer all of the cases. 
So to say that the reason for anti-Semitism is one of the reasons, scapegoat, price killer, whatever it is, it does not answer all of the questions. And apropos to our course, we are going to take a Torah view on one of the sources of anti-Semitism. Again, we're not saying there's only one explanation in the Torah either, um, but we will explore one powerful explanation and the reason why we're going to explore this particular one is because this particular one is not only an explanation, but it's also empowering and telling us how to lead our lives. In other words, some answers for anti-Semitism don't really leave you with much to do. If it's just a hate, a irrational hate, they hate for whatever reason they come up with, or a scapegoat, there's not really much you can do. Uh, this explanation will give us a powerful way forward and something of what to do. And this will take us back to a very old anti-Semitic um, story. That is the story of Purim. For those who don't know the story of Purim, um, Haman came to the king and Haman told the king, hey, you have a nation that is scattered amongst your, um, you have a nation that is scattered amongst your countries. They act differently, they talk differently, they have different laws. How about you get rid of them? So again, Haman is using the oldest anti-Semitic trope. He's saying, um, you know, these people, they're different. They act different. They're scattered. And Haman was not sure the king would go along with his plan. So he wanted to sweeten the deal. So he turns to the king and says, hey, listen, how about in addition for me getting rid of this problem for you, I'll pay you 10,000 silver coins, right? And why? He said, well, you know, if I kill the Jews, you lose some tax money, so I'll pay their tax difference. You no, know, isn't that kind of him? Offering to pay the tax bill for the Jews. Uh, quite kind of him, right? So, and the king said, you know what? Keep your money. You're doing me a favor by getting rid of the Jews. Just do whatever you want. Here's my ring. Make any decrees. Now, here's where an interesting, fascinating, Talmudic, Talmudic statement comes from. Now, the Talmud looks at this story and says, that's interesting. So he says, kill this strange nation and I'll pay you. And Al-Khashverit says, well, I don't need your money. And the Talmud seeks to give an explanation to this part of the story. And it says something very strange. Uh, in other words, it gives a parable that almost doesn't really explain anything. So it says, uh, you can read it in the text, but I'm, I'm going to say it outside. It says, imagine you have one person who has a field that has a ditch. You have another person who has a field with a pile of dirt. Again, one person has a ditch, one person has a pile of dirt. So the one who has the pile of dirt, uh, the owner of the ditch says, can you sell me your pile of dirt? And the one who has the pile of dirt wants to get rid of his pile of dirt. And so one says, can I buy it from you? The other guy says, take it for free. You know, you're doing me a favor. You're doing me a favor. You're getting rid of my pile of dirt. It helps you. It helps me. And, that, and that's what happens. Now, it's a very strange analogy. In other words, what wasn't clear in the story that the rabbis had to add? And the Rebbe finds in this story a very powerful idea that this really is a great explanation and an understanding uh, and a deep understanding of anti-Semitism. Let's take a look at Haman. Okay, or you know what? Let, let, let's understand the hatred of the mound in the field. Okay, let's think of the mound in the field. 
what would that represent? That would represent something that sticks out, something that doesn't belong, right? You have a nice, beautiful pumpkin patch. That's the season now, right? Okay. You have a nice, beautiful cucumber patch or a tomato patch, and you have a mound of dirt in your field that you don't need. It sticks out. It doesn't belong there. That's typical hatred, xenophobic, you know, typical racism. It's something that doesn't fit with everything else there. It doesn't look like a tomato. It doesn't look like a cucumber. It doesn't belong here. The Jew, they look strange. They act strange. They do strange. We want to get rid of them. That's plain and simple hatred. That's one type of hatred which can apply to all races at any time in any given place if they look different. And so that was really the hatred that uh, Haman was trying to sell to Ahasuerus, to the king. But that wasn't his real hatred. He had a much deeper hatred. He was trying to explain that to Ahasuerus. But really his hatred, as the Talmud says, his hatred was not the pile, not the mound. His hatred was the ditch. What type of hatred is that? What's wrong with the ditch? And the answer is that he felt something missing in his life. And that's why he hated the Jews. Something was missing in his life. Something about the Jews reminded him that he was missing something in his life. And that's why he hated them. Now you say, Rabbi, you're pulling something out of thin air. Where are you getting this idea from? Well, you just have to read the story in the Megillah. <coughs> Let's take a look at the story in the Megillah, the story of Esther. Those of the Megillah, the Gansa Megillah is the story of Esther. And let's read this part of the story over here. Haman was a fabulously wealthy person. For those who don't know, Haman was the richest person in the country. He had 10 sons, which apparently is a good thing. I'm kidding. Uh, he had 10 sons, which, which is a great thing. And uh, just as, as an aside, I, I was uh, just by the conference of rabbis and uh, we were meeting up with a couple of friends and then people asked, how many kids do you have? How many kids do you have? And, you know, Bunch of the rabbis there said we have three kids, and one guy there said we ha I have four kids. So uh, they so said, "Do you want to know what it's like to have four kids?" You say what? He says, "Imagine you're drowning and somebody hands you a baby. That's what it's like to have four kids." Anyways, so <laughs> um, so anyways, so having ten kids, it's a big blessing, right? It's a big blessing. You have ten kids. Um, so uh, Haman had it all, but yet look what he says. What happened was Haman was invited to be at the palace at a private dinner with the queen and the king. And he's walking out of the palace. He sees Mordechai not bowing down to him. And this is what Haman says. Haman told them, in other words, his family, about his magnificent wealth and his many sons and how the king had promoted him and advanced him above the other officials and royal, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, courtiers. What is more, said Haman, Queen Esther personally prepared a feast. And besides the king, she did not invite anyone but me. And tomorrow, too, I am invited by her along with the king. But all this means nothing to me each time I see Mordechai the Jew sitting at the palace gate. Now, when you think about the line, it sounds a little crazy. All his wealth, if you take him at his word for it, all his wealth, all his kids being invited in the palace of the queen and the king is worth nothing when he sees one Jew not bowing to him? It's one thing you're angry at him. But when you think about it, it's crazy. Haman saw one Jew not bowing at him and decided, that's it, I'm going to get rid of all the Jews. Mordechai's refusal to bow did not make, make Haman angry just at Mordechai, but there was something about Mordechai that made Haman angry at all the Jews to the point that when he sees him, he felt worthless in his life. 
which is which is a little crazy, right? It's one thing you don't like what he does. You know, Haman should have just said, off with Mordechai's head, and his problem would have gone. No, something about Mordechai reminded him why he hated all Jews. And the answer is that Haman, why did it bother him? Because Haman lived the typical, very self-centered, selfish, self-preservation life. He lived a life without a higher purpose. He lived a life of prestige and power and hoping that prestige and power and money will bring him happiness. But Mordechai lived a very different life. Mordechai lived a life of purpose and purpose was going to bring him happiness, not prestige and power. He lived a life of purpose. And so when Haman saw Mordechai and saw someone that lived a life of purpose that was willing to not bow because he lived with a purpose and a mission in his life, that reminded Haman of how void his life felt, how empty all the creature comforts of physicality that he had of self-preservation, it didn't feel right. He felt a void in his life. And so there's two ways to deal when you feel a void in your life. Either you get rid of the trigger or you fill that void. Either you start to live a life of purpose, or in Haman's case, he said, let me get rid of the trigger that reminds me that I'm living this empty life. You know, there are some people who, I've seen this, some people have friends who they, they feel are too successful, and they, 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 they don't get along, then they, they break up, they don't get along with them, they suddenly get into fights. Why? Because that other person makes them feel empty inside. They feel like, look at how wonderful this person is and how much they can do and how it starts to make them feel empty. And so, so to Haman looked at Mordechai and it made him feel empty about everything that was going on in his life. Because the reality is God created every single being and specifically every single human being with a purpose. God did not just create the Jewish people with a purpose. God created everybody with a purpose. God created us as purposeful human beings. And through purpose, we can reach happiness. And no other way will bring us true happiness. And if we fail to satisfy the desire for purpose, we keep looking for different items to fill our void. We keep trying to buy the latest iPhone and the latest uh, Lamborghini and, and the nicest house on the block and the greatest landscaping. But as long as we fail to fulfill it, we will be reminded every once in a while that our life is empty. And Haman, seeing Mordechai, felt that emptiness, and he decided instead of changing his life, he was going to get rid of his trigger, and that would be Mordechai. And this is, in fact, brought to our attention in a few statements of our sages. Our sages say in one place, why was Mount Sinai called Mount Sinai? It says it was called Mount Sinai because through it, the word Sinai in Hebrew also shares the word sin'ah. It sounds it's a sin and a samach, but it, it, the Talmud says it sounds like the word sinah, which means hatred. What does that mean? Through the Torah that was given in Mount Sinai, other people will hate us. Why? Because when we live our life of purpose, we remind others that they have a purpose too. And those who are not ready to live a life of purpose will hate us. In fact, it's a famous quote that was attributed to Yamach Shemo, uh, the terrible Hitler. May his name be erased. Attributed to him is the line, conscience is a Jewish invention. It is a blemish like circumcision. As we said, conscience is a Jewish invention, a blemish like circumcision. And uh, whether he actually said it or not is debatable. Uh, 
amongst the historians, but there are many other anti-Semites who have said a very similar idea. And so what I'm getting to tonight is that there is the hatred of Jewish people that stems from us being a mound, that we are different. And that's a simple hatred that can be a hatred that anybody hates. But then there's a hatred uh, of which our being reminds them of something else and they want to get rid of that. So you could say, Rabbi, it's a nice theory. It's just another one of the theory in the long line of theories. Uh, but in reality, what this theory tells us is uh, it's a very empowering message, and I'll explain why. They uh, say the story of two Jews who were being led to their deaths by anti-Semites, and uh, one Jew starts screaming, stop, stop, you're murdering an innocent person. And the other Jew says, shh, shh don't get us in trouble, don't get us in trouble. <laughs> why is that a joke? Unfortunately, it's a very common Jewish experience. Many of us, and this is, and I'm not saying it's us here, but throughout Jewish history, this has been a very common Jewish response, is when they hate us, we hide. When they hate us, we're going to be less Jewish. Uh, Jews for generations decided that you can look at Germany before World War II, let's assimilate, let's try and be like everybody else, or even Herzl. His famous idea, let's get a country for ourselves. We'll be like other people. Nobody will hate us anymore. And we can never look at anti-Semitism and say, what did we do wrong? Because anytime we take a look at anti-Semitism and we turn the question on ourselves, that's like a child that was bullied on the playground and says, oh, what am I doing wrong? You know, maybe, maybe the child did something to trigger the attacker a little bit, but that's never the real reason for the hatred. The bully usually has, right? Why is there a bully? Why is he not bullying, right? Why are no, the other kids not attacking this kid? Why is it only one bully? Because the bully has issues. The bully is not self. The bully has, has some insecurity issues. The bully has a bad self-concept and whatever it is. And so even if the child that was bullied maybe did something wrong, you know, we can all look I love to hear all the people all the time. Oh, you know, it's the Orthodox Jews that they do this and that, and they don't treat people nicely, or whatever. These Jews and they do this and that. There's all these explanations of what the Jews are doing wrong, or the country that we're in, or that's not the real reason. Anytime we're going to turn it ourselves, that's not going to help anti-Semitism abate. The right it is. We always have to identify the hate within the hater, and that was one of these. That was one idea of this explanation that we just gave. Haman's issue started with himself. It didn't start with the Jews. He had free will what to do about his hate. He could have chosen to befriend us, but he chose not to. Let's take a look. This is one of the most powerful texts of our entire course. Let's take a look over here at, um, at what Lord, Lord Jonathan Sachs says. It says like this. Again, if, if nothing else, this is one of the most powerful Text that we're going to read in this entire course, text 11 on page 64. Jews must fight anti-Semitism, but never internalize it. Again, fighting means we'll fight the reasons that are saying, but we should never internalize it. That is easier said than done. If you are hated, it is natural to believe that you are hateful. The defect lies in you, but the truth is it rarely does. Hate exists in the mind of the hater 
not in the person of the hated. Jews have faults, and Judaism is a religion of self-criticism and repentance, but those faults have nothing to do with those of which they are accused by their enemies. Anti-Semitism tells us about anti-Semites, not Jews. I'm going to say that line again. Anti-Semitism tells us about anti-Semites, not Jews. One of the mistakes made by good, honorable, and reflective Jews was to believe that since Jews were hated because they were different, they should try as far as possible not to be different. One second. They should try as possible not to be different. Some, so some converted, others assimilated, yet others reformulated Judaism to eliminate as far as possible all that made Jews and Judaism distinctive. When these things failed, as they did, not only in the 19th century Germany and Austria, but also in the 15th century Spain, Spanish Inquisition, some internalized this failure. Thus was born the tortured psychology known as Jewish self-hatred. And so, again, this is such a powerful, powerful line. And this goes back to what somebody was saying, what about self-hating Jews and, BD, and, and Jews who are pro-BDS? It's, again, our feeble attempt to get rid of anti-Semitism by getting rid of the reasons why they hate us. But in truth, the reasons why they hate us is their issue. It could be, as we presented one reason tonight, was we may give them this, this, this feeling of, uh, of missing purpose in their life. But whatever the issue is, it's not our issue, it's their issue. Can we be better? Can we not give them less excuses? Maybe. But ultimately, that does not, um, the reasons that they have for anti-Semitism is not the real reason they hate us. You know, they say, I was looking, I had this line over here, you know, what's the difference between, uh, between an anti-Semite and a Jew? So it says, an anti-Semite will tell you, the Jewish people, they're all dishonest. But I have my neighbor, uh, Moshe, he's a very honest guy, right? The Jews, they're terrible. But Moshe, my neighbor, he's an honest guy, right? Whereas Jews are just the opposite, right? Jews say, oh, Jews are all wonderful. But my neighbor, Moshe, oh, he's a horrible guy. You shouldn't get to know him, right? <laughs> the Jews are always the opposite, right? <laughs> uh, right? We love all Jews except for the ones that, uh, the ones that we know, right? <laughs> so but that's the thing. We have to always remember when it comes to anti-Semitism, remember that the issue is not in us. The issue is in the anti-Semite. We gave one possible explanation what their issue might be, but there could be many. And it starts with them, or maybe they grew up in a house, they're, they're afraid of people who are different. What, you know, a lot of times anti-Semites who, 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 you know, they're afraid of somebody else becoming successful. Whatever the reason is, the issue is with them. The issue is not with us. And why is this an important point? It's important because it tells us how we're supposed to act. If we believe the issue is with us, then obviously we are the ones that have to change. But once we realize it's not with us, then if we change, it's not going to change anything. Then just the opposite. Instead of changing, we should be more proud of who we are. And in fact, when you look at the story of Esther, what stopped the Jews being annihilated was Esther being proud of who she was. After Haman said he's going to kill all the Jews and the king Ahasuerus agreed to it, Esther came to the king and said, you know what? I never told you who I am, but guess what? I'm Jewish. And the king said, oh, you're Jewish. Wow. If Judaism produces people like you, I would have never thought to kill the Jewish people. I didn't know that's what it's like. 
So we see in the story of Esther being proud of being Jewish, Esther identifying herself as a Jew. That is what took care of anti-Semitism. And so if we want to fight anti-Semitism, either path we but our belief is if we are more proud of who we are and we show more of what we are, we can actually more effectively get rid of more anti-Semitism. Just the opposite of what people believe. You know, people that live nowhere, that have never met a Jew, believe Jews have horns, right? There are people that live in the middle of nowhere. They believe Jews have horns. You know, there's a story one of the rabbis tells. He says uh, he was once going on the subway. He was holding his shofar. It was a horn. And he sees a Gentile looking at him, looking at his horn, looking at him. And he, he looks at the Gentile and says, well, you know, I could, the horns, they're detachable. And, you know, he says, our horns, they're detachable. <laughs> you know, how do you stop that? How do you stop these, 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 these crazy ideas? You have horns. You are proud of who you are. You identify. So let's say you're in business. When you come there in business and you act, hopefully, as an honorable in business, right? Obviously. Again, if you act dishonorable in business, they're not going to hate you because, uh, because you act dishonorably, right? They hate Jews and they found you as an excuse, just pointing that out. But if you act honorable as a Jew and you're a Jew and you're an honorable business person, they will, you can say, they'll start to think maybe all these ideas that I thought about Jewish people, they're not really true. Maybe it's not really right. It's, um, in fact, let's take a look at... Um, there was a uh, text, text number 16. Um, text number 16. It's, this is a story of um, Mohammed Dajani. Mohammed Dajani, he was born 1946 in Jerusalem. He spent the years as a committed anti-Semite, and he was a senior Fatah operative. In 2014, this same person, as a professor in Quinn's University, led a trip of Palestinian students to Auschwitz. And he was fired for that. And why did he decide to bring students to Auschwitz? And he says himself, this is what caused him to decide to bring students to Auschwitz. Very fascinating. Uh, and this happens every day in Israel. Every day story that happens in Israel. Uh, let's take a look. I started going with my father to Hadassah in Karim Hospital for his chemotherapy. So his father was sick and he started going to the Jewish hospital. And to my shock, I started to observe that the doctors and nurses treated him as a patient. The doctors were very friendly and the nurses were also. He'd bring them fruit, oops, he'd bring them fruit, flowers and chocolate. And I noticed in the hospital that the Palestinians are also receiving treatment. That actually awakened me to a Ah, yeah, it jumps too far. Okay, that actually awakened me to a great extent to the humanity in the other, and it also awakened my humanity. This was the starting point. So again, if we want to deal with anti-Semitism, a classic answer is to be less Jewish, to hide our Judaism. And these questions are asked by the media. You know, now that there's anti-Semitic attacks in America, are you going to start hiding your Judaism? Are you going to start to put away that kippah? Are you going to start, obviously, I'm not advocating uh, walking into a KKK meeting with a kippah, okay? We're we still believe in personal safety. But generally, the Jews in France, so they start hiding that they're Jewish. Obviously, again, don't walk through a very dangerous neighborhood uh, provoking people, unfortunately, by wearing a kippah. But your general day-to-day -day life, be proud that you're Jewish. It's not going to get better if we hide our Judaism. So we might as well start being proud that we're Jewish. And if we're proud that we're Jewish, maybe like Esther, we can show one more person that Jewish people are honorable people. Jewish people are special people. Again, if they want to hate us, they'll hate us. 
And if, if a Jew rips them off, it's not really because Jews are more likely to rip them off. It's just, again, people who hate Jews because once you rip them off, it's not that Jews are more likely to rip them off. It's just an excuse to their preconceived hatred. But that can also work the other way around. If we act honorable and we show people that we're Jewish and we treat them with respect, they can then look at us and say, um, wow, this is what Jewish people are like. You know, that's, that's, that's something special. And I want to uh, end off with this text from uh, uh, Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, a really powerful text, uh, which really shows uh, just how funny it is how people try to hide their Jewishness. So this is uh, text 12. And he says like this. I was once traveling on a bus dressed in my customary garb, wearing a broad black hat and a black frock coat. A man approached me and said, I think it's shameful that your appearance is so different. There is no need for Jews in America to be so conspicuous with long beards and black hats. I'm sorry, mister. I said to the man, I'm not Jewish. I am Amish. This is how we dress. The man became apologetic. Oh, I'm so terribly sorry, sir. I didn't mean to offend you. I think that you should be proud of preserving your traditions. It's a real story. What happened in this story? The Jew felt we have to hide our Judaism. It, it, we, can't, we can't be Jewish like the old country here. We're going to cause people to hate us. Hide, 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 hide wherever you can. Oh, America is such an accepting place. We accept all people. We accept the Amish. But when it comes to his own people, he said, no, we have to hide. We have to take away that mindset. And in truth, when we are proud Jews, we are making America a safer place for other, for other minorities too, for other people to practice what they believe too in a proud way. I can't tell you there's so many countries in Europe where Jews and Muslims are coming together to fight bans on uh, ritual slaughter. If America is not a place where Jew can be a proud Jew, then it's not truly a free country. If you say, well, you can live here, you can be here, and you're free to come, but not as you are, that's not a real free country. For America to be a real free country, for America to live up to what America is, for a free country to live up to what it really is, it has to be a place where it is accepting and allowed for us to live our truth as who we are. And when we can live our truth and who we are, then others can live our truth as where we are. Because those who hate us and those who hate people are different. They hate the Chinese who are different and they hate, they hate the Hispanics. They hate anybody who's different. And so in a sense, when we live proud as who we are, we are also opening up the door to allow others to live proud of who they are. And so that's another way you know, people know anti-Semitism is always the gateway to other hates. We can also make the gateway to a lot of healing. And so this is really the idea that we learn today. We always have to remember, if we're worried about anti-Semitism, just remember, anti-Semites, the issue is in them. And if they have a specific reason to hate you, that may be just an excuse. But really, the issue is with them. And there are some people who, through education, who may be wondering and questioning, we can bring them over to the bright side. We can help explain it to them. But the way to go about getting rid of anti-Semitism, it has never been proven to be effective by hiding who we are, because eventually the anti-Semites found us anyways. And so the only real way to get rid of anti-Semitism is by being proud of who we are and, and, and showing who we are to the world and saying, do you think you could stop us from who we are? Are we going to be proud of who we are? Or are we going to pave the way for other people to be who they are? And on this note, um, 
we can try and help other people live a life of purpose. If like Haman, they don't like us because we're living a life of purpose. Well, Judaism has a message to the whole world and we should try and spread that message to everybody in a positive and good manner. And ultimately we know that one day we will come to the point in time when it says the wolf will lie with the lamb and the leopard will lie with the young goat. And that is hopefully we will come to the day when hatred will cease to exist and there will be peace amongst all the nations made happen very speedily in our days. Amen. And so just to recap, because I know I said a lot of things tonight, we started up saying anti-Semitism is absurd and we cannot attempt to refute all the conspiracy theories because they're absurd. And um, anti-Semitism, in fact, is just plain and simple hatred couched in a, uh, in a nice theory. And uh, much has been said about the root cause of anti-Semitism, but ultimately the hatred lies in the anti-Semite, not in us. And if we are hated, it is not for, we, for who we are, but it is despite who we are. And therefore, the only real way to get rid of anti-Semitism is to be more proud of who we are and to show people that we can be who we are. Identify yourself as Jewish and those who hate will hate you anyways. But you can, can, you can show other people that Jewish people are people that can be loved and uh, people that they can get to know and um, uh, people that, uh, uh, and slowly but surely we can convert the whole world. I'm going to end tonight's class with a video, but again, as usual, this video is optional. And um, for those who uh, want to go, you can go. But this video, and I'll tell you a little bit about this video, it, is, it was shown by the Kinos Hashlochim. It was shown by the Convention of Rabbis. And uh, it's been shared. You may have seen it, but it's really a powerful story how um, through anti-Semitism, um, we can actually cause Jewish growth. And uh, this is one of the most powerful stories they showed at the banquet of rabbis. And so I really think you're going to appreciate the story. So I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. And again, if uh, you want to go, I won't be offended if you don't want to hang out for the video. It's, it's optional, but it is a powerful story. I will also share it because uh, I know some people are in a rush. We'll also share it um, a little bit later. But uh, wait a second, where is it?